Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. But today it's not just me. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, James. I'm Michael Pointer general science enthusiast and current PhD student in evolutionary ecology at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. So you're joining me to talk about the annual Population Genetics Group Forum, a conference supported by Heredity that takes place every year, kind of at the end of December or start of January. And because I couldn't make it this year, you kindly stepped in to take over the role of field reporter. Absolutely. This was my second pop group, and your unfortunate absence gave me a great opportunity not just to go, but to really get involved. I'm happy for you, although I am very envious that you managed to get to go to what sounds like an absolutely fantastic meeting. So before we get into the interviews that you conducted, maybe you could just tell us a bit about Pop Group this year. Mm -hmm. So this was the 53rd annual Pop Group conference, hosted at the University of Leicester and attended by delegates from far and wide with interests somehow related to population genetics. The meeting had some really fascinating talks, as well as the relatively friendly and inclusive atmosphere that Pop Group is known for. I had a thoroughly good time. Yeah, amazing. And I guess some of the biggest talks there are actually the invited plenary speakers. And I understand that they're the first people that you interviewed. So who is it that we're going to hear from first? First up was Katrina Lithgow of Oxford University's Big Data Institute. Yeah, I'm Katrina Lithgow. Um, I'm at the Big Data Institute in Oxford, where I'm a group leader and Sir Henry Dale Fellow. I've been here talking about short-sighted viruses. So really, this is this idea that um, viruses will evolve to maximise their fitness within individuals, but that doesn't necessarily maximise their ability to transmit. So this creates a conflict. Great. What are the core points that you would like your audience to have taken away from hearing you speak? I think really kind of one of the most important points is that we can think about the evolution and the evolution of this virus and and that can really tell us about the biology of the viruses and what's transmitted and what's going to spread in the future. So this can really tell us a lot about how we might go about controlling and treating these viruses in the future. And the viruses that I'm interested for example, are chronic viruses. So this is like HIV, hepatitis C and hepatitis B virus mainly. So that has really important implications for human health. Yeah, potentially. And I understand that this is not your first pop group, as you mentioned in your talk. So could you tell us that story? Yeah, so this was uh, my first ever plenary talk. So that was very exciting. Um, and pop group is also where I gave my first ever talk in any conference um, in the first year of my PhD. So that was in Edinburgh in 1996, I believe. And what's quite nice is on the pop group website, you can actually go and download some of those old programs. And I was able to even see my abstract from back then. Nice. I'm hoping to make it into one of those programs soon myself. Okay, so I've managed to get a word with another of the plenary speakers out of the way of the hubbub. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Melissa Wilson. I'm an assistant professor at Arizona State University, and I feel pretty lucky to have stumbled into population genetics. I think it doesn't sound so uncommon having a math major, but 
I was at a small university. There were eight math majors in my <laughs> university and no one doing biology. So it was much more fundamental than applied mathematics. Okay. So my undergraduate research was in Feynman's operational calculus, uh, which is not what I do now mm-hmm. at all. And I did a REU, a research experience for undergrads at a, in mathematical biology, and that just kind of turned me on to this whole thing. And so then I went to grad school in bioinformatics and genomics and started studying sex chromosomes, and that kind of is where I've been stuck ever since. Um, here you are. Yeah. And what are you here to talk about at Pop Group 53? Ah, yeah, so here I'm talking a bit about sex chromosome evolution and how dosage compensation evolved and then more broadly, how we think evolution shaped sex differences in immune function and how that then results in sex differences in disease that we observe. So a lot of people think about it the other way. So I always start by talking about sex differences in disease because that's what we can observe. But I think what I'm really interested in is why they exist. So that's, that's what we're trying to get to. Great. Um, and what are the key messages then that you're trying to communicate on this topic? Uh, well, the X and Y chromosomes are important, and I think they often are excluded. There are a lot of people, especially here, who care about sex chromosome evolution, and you know, and that genetics isn't the only thing, right? So there was a there was a nice comment this morning about the interaction between genetics and hormone and environment, and I think one of the nice things is that people, even at a population genetics meeting, recognize the importance of the interaction of the environment and genetics. But yes, that that sex chromosomes are important, that it's non-trivial to include them, and that they may underlie some of the differences that are making a difference in human health. Great. That's really, really good. And I know this is your first pop group, and it's still early in the week, but uh, do you have any thoughts on it as a conference? So what I can say is there's a lot of people here who have met at other meetings who intentionally, or actually even better, unintentionally made me feel really welcome in science as an early career researcher and and even now. And they're people who are just really well regarded in the field and and brilliant scientists and they're wonderful human beings and they take the time to discuss and care about the science. And so I think it's really nice being at a meeting where there are a lot of people like that and it just seems during the breaks... Everyone's talking, people aren't sitting by themselves, and people are mingling quite a lot. So they'll start talking with one person and then move around. And I just find that it's silly to say heartwarming, (laughs) but some of the bigger meetings you go to, you know, people will fly in and give their talk for a couple hours and leave. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem to be the case here. People will come and they'll stay for the duration or as much as they can, and they're interacting and and I think that makes it a pretty unique kind of meeting. Sure. That's certainly what I heard about Pop Group for my first one. So thank you very much for speaking to me, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of the meeting. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I'm talking to Tuesday's plenary speaker. Hi, Anne. Would you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, um, I'm Anne Yoder. I'm a professor at Duke University, and I've been studying Madagascar for quite some time. Thank you. And what are you presenting at this meeting? 
I presented a sort of complicated talk on speciation in mouse lemurs and mostly the difficulties in trying to understand why these animals have been diverging over time, especially given that they're highly cryptic morphologically. And as far as we can tell, they seem to be doing the same things ecologically, yet they are diverging and have been diverging for probably a million years or more. Well, it was a great talk and what would you say are the take-home points that you would like people to absorb from that? Well, one take-home point, which I've already pointed out, that they're very difficult to study. They're small and they're nocturnal and they're in remote places and Madagascar is a very difficult place to get around. Um, but I think the take-homes that uh, we're just coming up with is that, yes, there are uh, many species and this has been a question and a justifiable question because there was a lot of taxonomic splitting that went on at, at a very rapid pace, much mm -hmm. of it based on just little snippets of mitochondrial DNA. So we've been looking at this with genomic scale data, uh, RADSEQ and, and the like, and we're collaborating with a lot of field biologists and we have a consortium of collaborators. So we're finally able to look at this sort of as a whole island system rather than just little you know, piecemeal studies. And yeah, so the take home, you know, number one take home message is yes, they are highly speciose. They're probably not as speciose as they are presently recognized to be. And the methods that we're using, um, which have been accused of always over splitting, we're actually finding can also put things back together. So the data can work both ways. Sure. And the analyses uh, show that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I understand that this is your first pop group, so how are you finding it? Oh, I love it. Um, I've, I've been telling people I'm strategizing ways to get back year on year from here to forth, and um, I was thinking earlier today that if I had started going to pop group when I was a graduate student, I'd be a be much better geneticist now than I am, um, but if I continue to go uh, going forward, then I just hope to get better and better. And, and certainly uh, the collegiality here is just remarkable. And I think it's just a fantastic environment for students and people to really, you know, put out new ideas uh, boldly and not fear retribution. Yeah, I quite agree. So, Ann Yoda, thank you very much for talking to me. Well, thanks. It was great to talk to you. I've managed to get a word with Wednesday's plenary speaker after his great talk this morning. Would you introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Stuart West. I'm uh, the Professor of Evolutionary Biology in the Zoology Department at Oxford. And could you give us a flavour of what you covered in your talk? So my talk was basically about why cooperation evolves, and in particular, how can we explain the diversity of it in the natural world? So which species cooperate, which species don't, how much cooperation they do, and what form it takes. Nice. And what key points do you hope that people are able to take away from hearing you? That's a good question. Um, the main points I'd want people to take away, I guess, are that we have a really good theoretical understanding of the different ways in which cooperation can evolve, either through sort of direct benefits to the individual or through some sort of altruistic benefit of helping relatives, kin selection. And also, the, a big aim of research in the area has been to take that theoretical framework and try and work out, okay, but what are the real concrete factors? What's the importance of different things? And I, I focused really on cooperation between relatives, 
not because the cooperation between non-relatives is, is important, but just because I think we've, there's a really good collection of research that lets us see how the same kind of things are acting across very different organisms, all the way from viruses up to mammals. Mm-hmm. And so as well as just seeing nice stories of what happens in particular species, I think we're at the point where we can really start making some big, broad generalizations, which basically make the world simpler to explain, which is... I mean, that's what I think the aim of evolutionary biology is. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think that came across really well. And I know that this is not your first pop group. So what is it about this meeting that keeps you coming back? I think there's lots of great things about pop group. It's a really nice size meeting. It's not too big. It's really friendly. You get a nice, real broad range of talks and people presenting those talks. And and it's 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 evolutionary focused as well. It's, it's a population genetics meeting, but more generally, I think, as well, it's just got a really nice evolutionary focus. Absolutely. And uh, that's great then. Stuart West, thanks very much for your time. Brilliant. Cool. Cheers. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So those all sound like absolutely fantastic talks. And I wonder, like, is there anything that stuck with you from any of them? Yeah, so the cool thing about plenaries in general is that the speaker has a bit more scope to tell the story that they want to tell. So it was interesting to see how each of these speakers ran with that. Uh, Melissa, for example, had some great insights from her research career to share, whereas Stuart chose to go very broad scale, almost like a review in presentation form. And like Anyoda, I've done some fieldwork in Madagascar. So there was some extra personal interest there for me. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm actually particularly jealous that you got to see Anne Yoder talk because I saw her give a presentation a few years ago in Portland at this big conference called Evolution, and it was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, so I can only imagine how good it must have been this time as well. But when you're at Pop Group, the plenaries aren't the only big talks. So who else was there? Uh, there's certainly not. Pop Group also has talks from award-winning scientists, and this year that was Oliver Pybus. I'm here with Oliver Pybus, who's here to give the Mary Lyon medal talk at this year's pop group. Thanks, Oliver. So please, could you tell us what you work on and what you're going to talk about tomorrow? Great. Uh, thanks. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here. 
it's a fantastic meeting, really enjoying it. Tomorrow I'll be delivering a talk called Philo Dynamics for Everyone. Most of the talk will be covering work on the evolution of viruses, mm-hmm. particularly rapidly evolving RNA viruses and human pathogenic viruses. And the talk will introduce the concept of phylodynamics, which is a, a word we invented mm-hmm. in a review in about 15 years ago now. Okay. And the word was coined to try and sum up a, a new theme of research that was coming out. And that research centered around a key concept which was that for these rapidly evolving viruses, their evolutionary dynamics, their molecular evolution, is occurring on the same time scale as their population dynamics. Okay. So that means, in the case of a, a, a virus, uh, their epidemiology. Um, and what do you consider to be the take-home points, then, from what you're going to talk about? I think um, phylodynamics is still in its infancy, to some extent. So this, this integration of population dynamic and evolutionary processes. I think it's been applied first to viruses for a number of reasons. One is certainly 15 years ago if you wanted to look for a study organism where you had tens or hundreds of genomes that was going to be a virus. So the the large data sets and and data sets sampled through space and time appeared first for things like HIV and influenza. So some of the theory I think was developed in that context first. Mm -hmm. But as technologies change as genome sequencing becomes more prevalent these concepts have been rolled out to dna viruses and to bacteria and if i hope if i get time in my talk i'm not sure i will um, i hope to talk about some of the future of where the field might go particularly we're interested in uh, the concept of applying phylodynamics at the level of single cells within multicellular organisms mm-hmm. so now we're moving to sort of single cell genomics getting to the idea of being able to infer reconstruct genealogies that represent the history of cell division within an organism. So obviously we have the complete developmental tree of C. elegans from the work of John Sulston and others. Yep. But also in, in, in the cancer biology field, there's now a lot of interest in, in drawing phylogenies, understanding the molecular evolution of cancer as a tree-based process. All, right. All sounds like really cool stuff. I look forward to hearing more about it tomorrow. Oliver Pybus, thanks again for talking to the podcast. Well, thanks. Thanks very much. So that sounds like a really interesting talk. What was it like when you actually saw it? So this was a definite highlight of the meeting for me. Oliver works at the intersection of several fields, and it was super cool to see how he brings those together to inform some really important studies. Unfortunately, important recently, of course, with the coronavirus outbreak, which I know Oliver has been working on. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Obviously, that's a huge issue in the world right now. But I guess we're kind of out of the sort of like big talks of the conference. But I understand that one of your favorite talks was actually one of the regular contributed ones. That's right. A talk by Richard Merrill. And I'll let him tell you about it. Thanks, Richard. I wanted to get a word with you because I think yours was probably my favorite talk from yesterday. And the work you presented forms a really nice story. And I hoped you could tell a potted version of that story for the podcast. Sure. Thanks very much. So I've been working with Heliconius butterflies for a number of years, and these butterflies are very famous for their bright warning patterns. And what's really cool about them is that these warning patterns often form mimicry rings where two or more distantly related species often converge on the same pattern to more efficiently advertise to predators that they don't taste very nice. But these 
Patterns are also used as mate recognition cues. So males of different species um, prefer to court and try and mate with females that look like themselves. So, for example, I work on two species, one called Heliconius melpomene, which has um, a red and black pattern, and effectively its sister species, which Heliconius sidno, which has a white and black pattern. So what I've mostly been working on is trying to understand the genetics of this change in um, preference from red to white. And this is all on the back of um, many, many years of people working on the genetics of colour pattern. What I've been working on is the corresponding change in preferences. And this is, um, you know, potentially a little bit harder because it's a behaviour and behaviours are difficult to, to measure. And I think perhaps surprisingly is that we also seem to find about three loci which have major effects. And these just these three loci seem to explain about 60% of the difference between the two species. Um, interestingly, from a speciation point of view, one of these behavioural loci is in effectively exactly the same genomic location as one of the major colour pattern genes. And what this suggests is that we have a, a gene underlying the preference for red as opposed to white, which at the very least is in tight physical linkage with one of the genes that causes this switch from a red to a white wing pattern. Um, so this is really kind of the point we are, we're at, but QTL actually represent quite large regions of the genome. And what we'd like to do is start to determine what are the actual causal genes underlying this change in phenotype. So the kind of second half of my talk yesterday was describing some work done by my PhD student, Matteo Rossi, uh, who's been looking at expression differences of genes within our kind of QTL regions in the brains of these two butterflies, as well as some hybrids. And I guess um, the short story is that he's found a handful of genes that are differentially expressed within these QTL or within one of these QTL. And what's really nice is this is beginning to fit together with some population genomic data we have regarding the evolution of these butterflies, which is starting to point to some kind of individual candidates underlying the shift in behaviour. So I guess that's my talk in a nutshell. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks. No, it's actually interesting. We've actually featured some similar work on the podcast before, and it's always a really fascinating one to kind of get into. Uh, so what was it you actually liked so much about this talk? So this was actually an abridged version of a talk that I saw Richard give last year at UEA. Um, we increasingly hear about the importance of communicating our science through storytelling. And I thought that this was a really perfect example of a research narrative. And it was also accompanied by some really beautiful slides as well. Mm, indeed, they are very beautiful butterflies. People should definitely give them a Google. But yeah, grand. So is that us out of interviews? Uh, not quite. I'm pretty confident that you'll remember Camille Jaron from a previous episode. <laughs> I do, I do. He won the talk prize last year. And to, to be honest, to date, he's the only person that I've ever had to actually censor on the podcast. Uh, were you able to speak to him at this conference? I did. And I actually sat next to him at the conference dinner, which was just as entertaining as his talk was. I can imagine that was a that was a good night. Uh, so let's hear what he's been up to. Hey, so I'm here with another of today's speakers. Could you introduce yourself for me? Hi there, I'm Camille. I have started my postdoc with Laura Ross this September, and uh, I focus on evolution of weird genomes. Cool. Well, I think everybody really enjoyed your talk earlier on. Your enthusiasm was really infectious. So, could you give us a short summary for the podcast? Sure. As I always work on evolution of weird stuff, I do encounter a lot of unexpected patterns in genomics. 
And I feel like when we're telling evolutionary stories, we're sometimes forgetting to mention the technical details and when things really look weird and we cannot explain them. So I dedicated the full talk about these peculiar cases we can see in genomics. So I just shown one case when the sequencing have completely failed to sequence half of a honeybee genome, mm-hmm. the genome of crayfish, where if you don't take into account uh, super repetitive sequences, then you're missing one-third of the genome, and the rotifers where we're actually still not sure about diploidy. Cool. Well, it was really fascinating and something very different, and thanks also for talking to us on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure. Camille, as engaging as always, and to be honest, I've actually seen from Twitter that the encouragement he got after giving this talk has actually spurned some research action, uh, which people should definitely check out because they can actually contribute to the work that he's doing off the back of this. Um, And I understand that you uh, were actually able to speak to the winner of this year's talk as well. I certainly did. That was Rishi, and here he is. Every year at Pop Group, delegates vote to determine the winner of the prize for the best student talk. I'm here now with this year's deserving winner. Please, would you introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm Rishi Duquesne, and um, I work on alpine whitefish in Switzerland right now. I'm in the fourth year of my PhD, and I work with Feline Fulner and Ole Seyhausen at Airbag and the University of Bern. And your talk obviously went across very well. Uh, What is it that you were presenting? (laughs) Thanks. Well, my talk was really about the PhD work that I've been doing. The first two chapters of my thesis were really to do with creating some new genomic resources for the whitefish that we work on. Although they're salmonids, um, they're pretty underrepresented in terms of the resources available for us to work on them. And increasingly, the interesting questions that we want to, un- uh, want to ask require these sort of advanced resources. So I presented the new whitefish genome that we've been working on with some exciting results about our chromosome level scaffolds that we managed to achieve. And I also talked about the follow-up projects we're working on, looking at the spatial variation in whitefish. So understanding how adaptive radiations of whitefish have evolved across lakes throughout Switzerland and whether there's any parallel adaptation that's gone on. And also a cool study by David Fry, another PhD student in the group, um, who's working in Lake Constance, looking at temporal variation in whitefish. And so we have scale samples pre-eutrophication in Lake Constance and post-eutrophication. And he's being able to show that there's some genetic contribution in the extinct species of whitefish, which have probably come from these species which went extinct during the eutrophication period. And so now we're following up to look at which regions of the genome might have introgressed from this extinct species into the current species, and whether those uh, regions might have interesting uh, function, or whether there might be a difference in distribution between genic and non-genic regions. Ah, that's great. That was a fantastic talk. Congratulations. And Rishi, thanks for talking to us. Thanks very much. Hmm, fantastic stuff. It sounds incredibly well-deserved. And I guess that means that there's only one person left to hear from on this episode, and that would be you. So how did you find this year's conference? Uh, It was really excellent. One thing I haven't yet mentioned was the evergreen Brian Charlesworth's very poignant tribute to the great John Maynard Smith, Mm. who he worked with and knew very well. Everybody really enjoyed seeing that. The entertainment was fantastic. Shout out to the Leicester Genetics Department's resident band, the Histones, for their gig on the second night. And of course, the traditional final night, Kaylee. The organisers did an excellent job. So big thanks to their whole team. And I hope we can do as well when we host Pop Group in Norwich in 2022. Yeah, fantastic. It does sound really good. And I've actually heard some clips of the histones, and I can't play them for copyright reasons, but they sounded fantastic. But right now, people should be able to hear some of the Kaylee band music. And I kind of love the fact that this sort of traditional country Scottish dancing is an integral part of pop group, no matter where it is in the UK. Sure is. 
And um, to be honest, I actually had completely forgotten that you are helping to organize uh, one of the pop group events in a couple of years. So hopefully this has actually given you some really good ideas about how you can run it and sort of really interesting activities that you can put on. I think so. Fingers crossed. Okay, well, that's actually us for today. So please subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice and give the journal a follow on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. And remember that you can get in touch with me directly at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com, which actually is the way that I first met Michael. But for now, I'm James Bergen. And I'm Michael Pointer. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.